Hi there, I'm Adam Voss. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Just ahead on the program, we'll talk with cybersecurity experts in Baton Rouge about what you can do to keep your small business secure in a workplace full of work from home and cloud services, and what you need to know to keep your home safe from cyber criminals and fraudsters with all of your smart Internet of Things devices around the house. We'll also talk about Mardi Gras in the nation's capital and the exhibit on display now at the Capitol Park Museum in Baton Rouge, illustrating this cultural appendage of Louisiana's in the nation's capital. First, Louisiana's insurance industry is in crisis. Nearly a dozen companies that wrote property and homeowners insurance policies have gone under since the devastating hurricane seasons of 2020 and 2021. We're joined by Capital Access reporter Paul Braun to talk about mounting frustrations. Paul, could you start off by telling us a bit about the problems the insurance industry is facing here? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of folks are, are dealing with this problem every day in the aftermath of the hurricanes that devastated the state in 2020 and 2021. Um, and we've seen some recent reporting from the, the state's legislative auditor getting into how deep this crisis is and, and um, some of the causes for that. So, yeah, as you said, no fewer than 11 insurance companies that wrote homeowners policies have gone under since July of 2021. And a dozen more have either withdrawn from the state uh, by, by canceling or refusing to renew existing policies. Why? Well, there are quite a few reasons. Um, just to start with, insurers that have gone under, there's a, the recent report from the state's legislative auditor has found that the insolvency of at least six of those insurers was directly caused by those insurers' inability or unwillingness to take out adequate reinsurance ahead of Hurricane Ida. And reinsurance is, is just what it sounds like, insurance policies that these companies take out against their book of business to protect them against catastrophic events like hurricanes. Uh, there are a couple of reasons this could be the case. Irresponsible business practices, for one. Perhaps the companies didn't have enough reinsurance when disaster struck because they had undervalued the properties that they covered. But the report also suggests that the risk-calculating formula that these companies are using to determine how much reinsurance they need may be flawed. Wow, that's kind of concerning. What Were there any warning bells going off with the insurance regulators that could have prevented this crisis? Well, according to legislative auditors' report, not really. The State Department of Insurance is responsible for making sure these companies have enough reinsurance specifically to, to cover the, the, the policies that they hold. Um, but the Department of Insurance also uses the same formula that many of these companies and, and rating agencies are using. So the flaws inherent to that formula would carry over to the regulators. And, and, some, and that's why there wasn't a whole lot of warning that this might be the case. Hmm. Is it possible that there's a climate change factor into all this? That's certainly a question that looms large over this whole crisis, particularly when it comes to how companies decide how much reinsurance they purchase. It's it's something that the Biden administration plans to look into. Just today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced that the department's uh, the Treasury Department's Federal Insurance Office is going to start collecting information on the number of policies, claims, and losses that um, large insurance companies have in each zip code over the last five years. This is going to be focused on 
the 200 largest companies, uh, which hold the vast majority of policies across the country. It's worth noting that the, the 11 companies that went under in Louisiana made up a very small percentage of, of the customer base. But uh, the, the federal government's really hoping that this data will give them better insight into how climate-related exposure to risk could be affecting the availability and the cost of insurance. Okay. Paul, we've made it through this hurricane season so far, mostly unscathed. But with the insurance industry in such a vulnerable place right now, what are the odds that this crisis could get worse? Yeah, I mean, vulnerable places is like a good way to describe it. Um, with all of these companies going under, the state has sort of stepped in to, to – it has systems in place to, to pick up those homeowners' policies and, and take over. Um, the Louisiana Citizens Property Insurance Corporation is the state-run insurer of last resort for people who can't get insurance from the private market because their insurance went under – or because that they live in an area that insurance companies consider to be too high risk. And over the last year and a half, the total number of policies held by this citizen's company, it tripled. And the state-run insurer is now responsible for $33 billion <laughs> worth of policies. It's a pretty huge amount. It makes up a significant portion of the insurance market in the state of Louisiana. And there's the concern that because of these calculation issues, the state may not have enough reinsurance to cover the policies if disaster strikes once again. Sounds like we might be hearing more about the story. Paul Braun, thanks for being here on Louisiana Considered. Anytime. And from WRKF and WWNO, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Numerous state and local officials have recognized the month as a time to draw awareness to cybersecurity issues. After all, it's relatively recent memory. Various government agencies in Louisiana sustaining high-profile cybersecurity incidents. Remember that, for example, in 2019, a ransomware attack effectively shutting down electronic services for the city of New Orleans. And since then, the pandemic has happened and we've had work from home. It's all made uh, being online even a more central part of the functionality of our workplaces and our businesses and our homes. Uh, more devices are on the internet, devices that run our air conditioning, heat, monitor our security cameras, even lock and unlock our doors. Stevenson Technologies is holding a cybersecurity demonstration event at an actual model home this Thursday in Baton Rouge. To speak with us about it, we have Larissa Millette and Ryan Smith, who are both information systems security engineers at Stevenson Technologies. Thanks for being on Louisiana Considered. Thank you for having us. Yep, glad to be here. So cybersecurity for enterprise situations, very large businesses and government agencies is a very different thing from making sure your your Nest thermostat doesn't get hacked. Or is it? Can you tell me the difference there? So obviously the kind of base principle of cybersecurity will apply no matter what device you're trying to secure. Um, kind of the thing you're seeing now with a lot of these devices, since they are all kind of networked in, is you have a lot of the same network security principles. And really the main difference is just the actual device itself security. So if a device like a Nest thermostat has certain ways you connect into it, those parts that you connect into it will be different for securing it. But when it comes to kind of those general security principles, those kind of apply no matter what device you're protecting. So let's outline some of those basic security principles. Cyber hygiene, digital hygiene is one term that I've heard, just to have a baseline on what you're talking about. Yeah, of course. So the number one thing is always protecting the passwords or whatever you use to authenticate to connect to your devices. You know, most devices, that's your username, your password, and preferably multi-factor authentication for any device you're connecting to. You never want to reuse passwords between different accounts. So that's kind of generally what I would refer to as like those very base cybersecurity principles. 
you know, a lot of times you have this trade-off between security and safety and convenience. And of course, people mm -hmm. might find it slightly less convenient to have two-factor authentication, you know, a thing that says, yes, that is me logging in. Or it might be less convenient to not share some passwords or at least have, you know, similar passwords between devices so you can actually remember them. How do you, how do you tell people to balance security with convenience? Um, yes, that is something we do run into. People choose convenience over privacy every day. We recommend, first of all, with a personal and your organization, you should have separate passwords. Never use your personal passwords uh, with your work passwords. And then also there are solutions out there called password managers that you can utilize. And, you know, those password managers can help you with uh, different passwords for all of your resources. Yeah, Lewis is definitely right. You know, um, at the end of the day, security will come at the cost of some convenience to you. Um, and that's kind of the thing we want to bring to people is you lose a little bit of convenience, but you gain a lot of security when you do these things. Let's talk about small businesses. Our businesses, our workplaces are expected to be online these days. We have to send emails and run credit card payments. We now, many of us have to be able to work from home. You can't just you know be secure by saying, no, we don't put stuff online. Many of the digital tools that have been used on a computer for years or even decades, perhaps even without internet access, are now actually in the cloud. They're accessible to anybody who can log in on the wide open internet. What are some of the things that small businesses with limited resources to spend focused on cybersecurity, let alone IT, can do to keep up with the times when it comes to digital security? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a huge concern now since you're kind of at the mercy of these cloud service providers and their security. So if a cloud service provider gets either hacked or if they go down and they're just unavailable, you know, those are definitely huge concerns. Um, unfortunately, there's not too much you can do whenever it comes to actually being stuck in these cloud environments to protect yourself outside of making sure you go through the kind of terms of service you have with the provider and be aware of what they're actually doing for you. Um, for example, make sure you have your own backups if you're utilizing cloud services. A lot of them say they back up your things. You might not have any legal recourse because of just the way the data is stored. Uh, well, first of all, I think the primary concern should be their organizational data. They need to understand what information they have and its value to the organization. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be expensive if you're proactive. Now, all this talk about the risks of cybersecurity might be a little nebulous to some of us listening right now. Can you give us some examples of what a hacker, of what someone would do with access to your accounts, to your, your logins, your passwords? What exactly do these attacks look like? What kind of fraud is possible? Um, I have encountered several businesses within the past year where it was probably a phishing email. Someone clicked on it. Their credentials were compromised. The attacker created mailbox rules. The, the person had admin access. So they were able to go throughout their whole outlook, sat there and did their reconnaissance for a couple months and start sending out emails on behalf of the employee to the client that the invoicing process had been changed, you needed to start sending your money to different banking information. And so when the customer would reply back, hey, this seems a little suspicious, those emails were not even getting back to the actual employee because the attacker was intercepting them. And so the customer wound up wiring the money to the new supposed bank account instead of picking up the phone and calling and verifying. And this happens a lot. 
Let's pivot and talk about our homes and our personal lives. What are the most common security issues we face in our homes personally between our social media, our email, e-commerce, even the smart devices in our home? So when it comes to things in the home that I would guess you'd be most concerned with, I mean, for me, it's first and foremost, if you're working from home, so first and foremost, obviously your Wi-Fi. Um, you don't want to be using a extremely weak Wi-Fi password because once someone is on your network, it's a lot easier for them to attack everything else. Um, and then something else that's huge, I know when it comes to small businesses, they struggle with is try to keep your work, any asset you use for doing work. So any laptops or phones separate from anything you use personally, you know, don't have things like TikTok or Instagram on the same device that you're using to do all of your critical, you know, banking and other things for work. Um, that's a huge thing to keep separate as possible since you really increase the attack surface and ways they can actually attack your, your business. If all of your personal things are going through that same machine as well, since you have all these additional applications that can be vulnerable, you have all these personal emails coming in, you know, hopefully no one's sending you malicious links, but you never know. Um, Cause that's really where a lot of those issues come in. I also think that um, the organization should have some policies and procedures in place that outline what is acceptable with their employees, you know, what they can and cannot do, you know, as far as are they allowed to use their personal device to check their email, et cetera. There definitely needs to be some type of acceptable use policy. So tell me about this event you're holding Thursday. This is the demonstration. It's out of home in Baton Rouge in the Roseanne neighborhood. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're demonstrating? Yeah, absolutely. So with the demonstrations we're going through, we have a thing we call an IoT living lab. Again, IoT devices are those Internet of Things devices, you know, things such as the smart oven, smart microwave, smart water faucet, smart lighting, and kind of, you know, all these various smart devices. We have roughly 40 in there. And for this event, we're going to go through a handful of those devices that have pretty huge impacts when hacked. We're going to demonstrate us hacking the device, and then we're going to demonstrate the outcomes of hacking it. You know, things like, you know, if I hack into certain things, can I turn on a microwave or turn on your oven remotely? Or if I hack into what device, what kind of information can I get out of that device about you and your daily routine? What are some of these devices? You mentioned a faucet? Yes. So we have things, there's like a Delta smart water faucet in there. The, the main idea behind it is you can tell it to dispense an exact amount of water, right? So I can say, hey, Alexa, tell the Delta faucet to dispense two cups of water, and it'll give me exactly two cups of water. But I can also turn it on. And then the thing we show with our hack is, well, what if we are in a completely different country and we just turn your water on and let it run for hours, right? Um, so that's one of those things we'll show with that. So, and this is Thursday, 3 to 7 p.m. And where is this taking place? So this is in the Roseanne neighborhood. It's right there by that new Sprouts off of uh, Perkins. And where can we find out more? So we have an Eventbrite link. You can also check our website at stevensontechnologies.org. If you plan on attending, definitely sign up first to make sure you actually get a chance to kind of go through the house and see everything. Do you have to be especially technologically literate to know how to, for instance, disable smart features on your devices or to understand what the risks are to change your settings? I will tell you, I still stand by it. If, if I need to find something on how to disable anything or default passwords, where do I go? I Google. I, Google is my friend. I use it every day, multiple times a day. And if I need to, you know, get to a certain setting on my phone, I use Google because, you know, I don't know where everything is. Um, you know, we have so many devices and, and settings and, and things like that. So when in doubt, I Google. Larissa Millette and Ryan Smith are both information systems security engineers at Stevenson Technologies. Thank you both for your time today. Thank, Thank you for having us. us.
This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Some might say it's never too early to start thinking about Mardi Gras. Capitol Park Museum in Baton Rouge has unveiled Carnival in the nation's capital, the Washington Mardi Gras Ball, an exhibit examining that annual event in D.C., which, as the lieutenant governor puts it, showcases and promotes Louisiana's culture of business and its business of culture. Here to tell us about Mardi Gras in Washington, D.C., we have Renina Hart of the Capitol Park Museum. She designed the exhibition. Thanks for being here. Hi, I'm so happy that we're able to talk about the exhibition with you. So tell me, what was the genesis of the idea to have an exhibit about Mardi Gras, specifically the Mardi Gras in D.C.? Well, actually, this idea came from a while back. We started putting together some ideas about what would a Washington, D.C. Mardi Gras look like in Capitol Park Museum in Baton Rouge. How could we bring this exhibition to this new space and kind of, you know, pay it justice? And so we decided that we needed to look at its history, look at the way that it's evolved, and also some of its future. And, you know, 75 years ago in 1944, some homesick Louisianians decided that they would bring their favorite holiday to Washington. And from that point on, with few interruptions, there have been a Washington Mardi Gras whole three-day celebration. So Mardi Gras in Louisiana is one thing. How is Mardi Gras in Washington, D.C. different? Well, it really highlights everything that is special about Louisiana. So it's everything from Louisiana culture and agriculture. Uh, It's a, a way of promoting tourism and visitation to Louisiana. We know that the mystic crew of Louisianians, as they're now known, they at one point in time were the Louisiana State Society, and they were led by John H. Overton. Uh, he proposed a New Orleans-style ball in 1943, and in 1944, they were able to have the celebration. It's become more of a three-day celebration with parties, brunches, Uh, dinners, networking, uh, lots of formal balls, but really culminating to that one big ball where everyone gets to celebrate Louisiana culture. You mentioned homesick Louisianans starting the D.C. Mardi Gras. How do you think that celebration has changed over the decades from a time when maybe it was harder to travel back and forth between D.C. and Baton Rouge and be in contact where today we're all an easy proximity with electronic media and email? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, whenever our our homesick senators and and other politicians, they were thinking about home, they were thinking, how can we bring a part of home here? And also, what are the things that make us so special? And historically, this had been a real Washington-based event. Lots of politicians from across the board had attended. But the more that this happens, the more Louisianians you're finding at the ball. It's become something that has been a a great exporter of visitation in Washington for Louisianians, but also just a celebration of everything that makes us fun and good and unique and absolutely worth visiting. Let's talk about the exhibit. Uh, What artifacts will we find there? Uh, I saw an old photo in 1953, I think, of then-Vice President Richard Nixon, Queen Dawn Marie Hebert, daughter of Congressman F. Edward Hebert, 
and King James A. Nobe, former governor of Louisiana. So tell me about what we'll get to see there. Exactly. Uh, We've got beautiful costumes and we're able to look at what are the distinctions with their costumes? How do they present themselves? What makes them unique? We've got casework that highlights lieutenants, some that highlights the captains. We've got mantles that flow duple badges. So some of the dupes from these events. We've got the 1975 ball, which we highlight. We've got a big projection that you, it's like you're there uh, during that event. Uh, We highlight Roderick. Um, He created some really cool artwork and costuming when he was king. We have posters and invitations. We also have some of the artwork that the posters were made from because a lot of Louisiana artists throughout the years have created what physical things are there to commemorate these events. And so it's great to be able to highlight the artists and the product that comes from it. We're speaking with Rodnina Hart of Capitol Park Museum. We're talking about their exhibit, Carnival in the Nation's Capital, the Washington Mardi Gras Ball. It's about the Washington, D.C. Mardi Gras. Rodnina What is it that makes this exhibit about Mardi Gras different from any other exhibit about Mardi Gras? Well, the way that we talk about our culture, if we're exporting it, if we are trying to bottle up all of the things that make us so unique and experienced, how do we do that for an audience that is outside of Louisiana that may never have been to Louisiana to make them want to come here and spend their money here. Well, we are able to highlight our festival queens. We're able to highlight our industry, things like our seafood, our agriculture, our history, and our businesses and the things that really make us special. We are able to highlight things like the firsts, like John Bro bringing in Louisiana foods and musicians and, you know, chefs like Paul Perdome and John Foles, people who are just passionate about this state, are our go-to ambassadors of culture and history. Part of it sounds like it's Louisiana and Mardi Gras concentrated in a way. Precisely. Yes. Let's distill ourselves down to our essence. And it is good food, good friends, good fun. What do you hope that visitors will learn and take away? What experience do you hope that they'll take from the exhibit? Well, like many of our exhibitions, we hope that it's something that draws in people who are not from here and is a source of pride and celebration for those who are from here. We want to make sure that we're highlighting the things that are most important to what makes us special. And we also want to make sure that if your family is in town from, from, for the holidays, you bring them to Capitol Park Museum. You show them this concentrated space about our culture, including Mardi Gras, and then show them, and this is how we celebrate what really makes us special even if we have to be away from home. Rodnita Hart of the Capitol Park Museum, thank you for being here today. Oh, I'm always happy to come and chat with you. 
And you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. We heard today from Capital Access reporter Paul Braun. A thank you also to Larissa Millette and Ryan Smith of Stevenson Technologies and, of course, Radina Hart of the Capitol Park Museum. That exhibit, by the way, Carnival in the Nation's Capital, the Washington Mardi Gras Ball, opened today, and it's on display now at the Capitol Park Museum in Baton Rouge, 9 to 4, Tuesdays through Saturdays. Our managing producer here at Louisiana Considered is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Thomas Walsh. Today's engineer is Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at noon and 7.30 p.m. on the station. The show is also available on Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health. You're listening.